If that's the Holy Spirit outside, here's to me being blown over soon. If you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 5. It's a real pleasure to be with you all tonight in this exciting time here at the Life of Desert Springs. I echo what John has said. Steve is a wonderful man, and he's indeed, uh, indeed been called to come and serve y'all and to love you. God's hand has been in this process for the whole. And uh, this is God's man for you, to lead you and to shepherd you. So would you continue to love him and listen to him as he brings God's word to you? Tonight our passage uh, is in John chapter 5, verses 1-18. through I'll read it and I'll pray for us. This is God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem was the sheep gate, sheep gate, sheep gate at Pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you as your people. We come to you as those that are excited, that are thankful for what you're doing here in the midst of of Desert Springs. And Father, we do pray that you would use these men and women, this congregation, to change northwest Tucson, to be a bright light. Would you equip them to engage this this area, this cross-section of the city? And would you strengthen them with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus, 
to minister on behalf of you. Father, we do pray as we look at this passage that you would equip us tonight to do that task and to know that you're at work. Father, we pray as we always pray, as we leave here tonight, would we be different people because we met with our Savior. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As I'm making my exit out of RUF, some of you all know, some of you might, might not know, but I've been called away to serve another church in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm not going to make tonight about me because it's not about me. But the reality is, is I am leaving. And I am going somewhere else to serve. In this past couple of weeks, I've spent time, like Mary did, as she learned that she would give birth to Jesus, treasuring up the things that God has done and pondering them in her heart. That really has been a verse for me that I've kind of resonated with the past couple of weeks. Treasuring up what God has done the past four years as I've been here at the University of Arizona. I remember things like showing up my first Sunday here at Desert Springs and being welcomed home by the Boyers to have lunch with the REF students and being loved on and being cared for. I remember things like going and playing golf with the local pastors and being encouraged in my ministry. I remember taking students on weekend retreats, weekend retreats and conferences. I remember a lot of things. And they're very sweet to me. And nobody can take those things away. But what I've been pondering the most the past two and a half weeks is the reality that God is at work. That God is doing something here through RUF at the University of Arizona. And He's been doing work there before I even came. And He will continue to do work as I leave. But the point of our passage tonight is that God is at work. God is at work in your midst. God is at work at the University of Arizona. God is at work in this city. And He's doing something. And He asks us to participate in that work. He asks us to listen and to follow. And to be His hands and His feet. And to do His work. But we know we struggle at this work. We know that Adam and Eve had problems in the garden. And they rebelled. But God didn't give up on them. And God hasn't given up on us. God, from the very beginning, from the time we screwed up, God has been at work to remedy our problem. God has been at work to restore shalom. Cornelius Plantinga, in his famous treatise on sin, called not the way, It's Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, talked about sin really being a vandalism of God's shalom. That sin enters into our world and vandalizes the shalom of God, the completeness, the peace, the welfare, the harmony of God's creation is broken and vandalized by sin. But God has been at work to remedy that and to restore it. And we must remember that. Steve, 
Desert Springs, you must remember that God is at work. You know, being in RUF for four years, I've had opportunities to teach RUF training. And for those who are in RUF, the first three years, really, for the first, or for the first three years, 90% of their time is being indoctrinated into the philosophy ministry of RUF. And the second year that you're a campus minister, you're, test, you're tested on what the philosophy ministry is. And kind of the meat of the philosophy ministry really is the presuppositions of the ministry. And there's six of them. And we sit down, these new campus ministers, and we ask, what are the six presuppositions? Write them down. And there are a few new campus ministers that can remember six of them, but not many. But the majority of them remember five of the presuppositions. And the majority of those that remember five, they all seem to forget one. And that one is that God's at work. That God is doing something. And the reason that they forget that, and the reason we forget it, is because we think we're at work. That it's us that's doing the work, not God. And that's just an indictment upon us as God's people. That God is the one that's doing the work. And we must remember that. We must remember that He's restoring what went wrong in the garden. And Steve, as you think about ministering to these people, I encourage you to remember that, that God is at work. Because if you don't, your ministry is going to ebb and it's going to flow. You're going to be excited, you're going to rejoice, you're going to be depressed based on your performance, based on how well your, your Bible study went, how great your sermon was, or how terrible it was. <laughs> if you don't remember that God's at work, your life is going to be manic. And it's not going to be even keel. And so I encourage you to remember and to own the reality that God is at work. Now our passage tonight begs the question, God's at work, then what is He doing? What is God doing? In our passage tonight, Jesus shows us in three ways what God is doing to restore creation to restore shalom, to restore peace, completeness, and harmony. The first thing he shows us, the first work that he's doing, is he's showing compassion to the weak. We start at the very beginning here that that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem to attend a feast. And he goes to this, this man that has been an invalid, a man that's been sick for 38 years, Now we know the the lifespan of those at this time, and it wasn't very long. And so chances are, this man probably can't remember the last time he walked, or felt his legs, or knew what it meant to get up and to stand. And Jesus goes to him. He goes to this man that's unwanted, that's broken, that's unimportant, And he cast his eyes upon him. What does it say? When Jesus saw him, Jesus looked at this man. Jesus looked at him. He cast his eyes upon him. This insignificant, helpless, broken person. What a beautiful statement. 
that Jesus cast his eyes upon this weak and wounded person. Now, there's no reason for Jesus to be at this pool. There's no reason. Unless he was looking for something. We know that Jesus showed up in Jerusalem to attend a feast. And the feasts back then were about family or family oriented or relationally oriented. And as we read the passage, we don't hear anything about Jesus and his family. We don't hear anything about Jesus and his disciples. All we know is that Jesus is in this no man's land of Jerusalem, seeking after something, going to this, this pool to find this man. What does that tell us? It tells us this, that Jesus' compassion toward the weak is not unintentional. It's intentional. That Jesus is seeking after this man. There's no reason for him to be there unless he was looking for something. And he was looking for something. He was looking for this man. God's compassion toward the weak is never unintentional. It's always intentional. He always has a purpose. He's always seeking after those that are weak and wounded and sick and sore. He goes to this, he goes to this pool, this sheep gate in Jerusalem. Legend has it that these people have gathered in this place because they believe that angels at times and periods come down and they dip their finger in these pools and the first person to enter the pool after the, the angel has disrupted the water becomes healed in every way. And this man is there looking to be healed. He's looking there. He's there hoping that somebody will be gracious to lift him up and to take him to the pool after things have been stirred up, after the water has been stirred up by the angel. He's looking for compassion. He's looking for grace. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus offers him that intentionally. This doesn't surprise Jesus. Now, many of us in here are very good at showing compassion. Maybe it's a, a spiritual gift. You, you love to care for those that are weak. You love to care for those that are marginalized or hurt or broken. And a lot of us do that kind of unintentionally. We see somebody that's, that's poor or needy or in need of food on the side of the road, and so we stop and we give them some food or some money. Or we stop and we take them to a restaurant or we, we give them cards on where they can find food or shelter. And the compassion in our lives is mostly unintentional. And Jesus comes to us tonight through this passage and He says, your unintentional compassion is honoring to God. It is. What did Jesus say in Matthew, Matthew chapter 25? Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Jesus is honored by your unconditional compassion, or unintentional compassion. But Jesus in our passage tonight says, follow me. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to bring restoration, if you're going to do the work of God, then your compassion is going to be intentional toward those that are weak and wounded and broken. 
those that are marginalized, those that are awkward, those that are homeless and self-destructive, the poor, the lonely. Steve, in Desert Springs, your ministry here in the northwest corridor of Tucson must always be concerned, by the, concerned about those that are sad, that are depressed, that are weak, who need safety, who need food, who need water, who need help. And as Jesus teaches us in this passage, who need to be seen, who need to be looked upon and cared for. God's work in this passage and God's work in this city starts with His intentional compassion. And I encourage you to follow that way, follow Him in that, to be concerned about those that are weak and wounded and to do it with intention. But it's not good enough for Jesus to show up and see this man. Jesus shows up to heal him. Jesus' compassionate intentionality is not to show up and not offer this man nothing. No, He comes and offers him restoration. What does He say? He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? What a beautiful question. Now, this man has been sick for 38 years. He's been an invalid for most, if not all, of his life. Why in the world is Jesus asking him, do you want to be healed? Why would Jesus ask him this? Of course he wants to be healed. Why is he sitting at this pool? Because he wants to be healed. Don't you think Jesus knew that? Don't you think Jesus knew that this man wanted to be healed? Of course he did. So why did he ask him the question? Why is Jesus engaging this man? He's engaging him because he's a human. Because he demands respect. He's an individual created in the image of God. And Jesus cares for this person. His intentionality, it's all about loving and respecting those that are weak, those that are hurt. Jesus moves into this man's life and gives him dignity where nobody else would speak to him, where man would run by him when the waters were stirred up and ignore him. Jesus shows up and pays attention to him and sees him and interacts with him. And in that sense, in that sense gives him respect and dignity. Jesus' intentionality brings respect and dignity. His restoration power brings this man healing. Now, if you read this passage, it's easy to see that it, it's easy to stop and think, well, it's about being healed. It's about Jesus moving into this man's life and healing him and fixing his legs and giving him life again. But I want to suggest to you tonight 
that this passage is not so much about a miraculous endeavor as it is about an evangelistic endeavor. You see, Jesus is evangelizing this man. Jesus is revealing who he is to this man and all his restorative power. It's time for us as a people to not see evangelism as simply asking three questions. Evangelism is so much more than that. Evangelism is loving people and caring for them and respecting them and giving your life for them that they might know the evangel, the good news, the person of Jesus. And that's what Christ, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing who He is in all of His power. And He's evangelizing this man. He's revealing that He is the Messiah, the one that was promised to come and to remedy all our problems and to rescue us from sin and to push back sin's dominion and to reveal the light and the glory and the grace of God. Jesus is gracious in His evangelism to this man. Now, how can we understand that? What does that look like? Well, for many of, for many of us in here, we, we know the story of Les Mis. We've read the book. We've seen the play. And there's one incident that brings about salvation in Jean Valjean's life. And we know what it is. It's his interaction with the bishop, right? Bishop Myreal. And what happens? Jean Valjean is let go. And he has a slip. He has to keep carrying it around. And he's looking for a place to stay. He's homeless. And this bishop lets him in. And Valjean, Valjean, uh, Jean Valjean comes in and tries to sleep tonight, but he's, he can't because the wood is, is not what he's used to or the bed is, is so uncomfortable because he's used to sleeping on boards. And so what does he do? He leaves. But as he leaves, he takes the bishop's silver and he runs off with it. Right? And then the police catch him. They catch him with all the silver and they take him back. And what does the bishop do? Does the bishop condemn him? No, the bishop shows him grace. He intentionally says, Sure, I gave this man all my silver, but I can't figure out why he left the candlesticks. Why did you leave the candlesticks? And in that moment, in that expression of grace, Jean Valjean is healed. He's touched by the power of the gospel. And his life is forever changed. Because the bishop reveals to Jean Valjean the character of God, of who he is in grace and forgiveness. And Jean Valjean's life is changed forever. He's healed. God's work starts with His intentional compassion for those that are weak. And He cares for them and He heals them. But it doesn't, start th- it doesn't stop there. He goes on 
to confront the Pharisees. You know, evangelism is an important aspect to the church. And I pray that as y'all come together and gather around Steve and as y'all formulate a vision and a mission these next couple of weeks, years, months, on what you're going to be about here at Desert Springs, I pray that you would listen to what Harvey Kahn says in his book, Evangelism, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace, where he says, For too long, evangelical white Christian communities in the United States have had a cum structure, a parochialism that identifies with saints. One cannot be a missionary church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church on the church's terms. It must become a ghost structure, and it can do that only when it concerns, only when its concerns are directed outside itself toward the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. The church must, must recapture its identity as the only organization in the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. You, Desert, Spring, Desert Springs, does not exist for yourself. You exist for those that are out there that are not your members, that need to know the healing grace of Jesus Christ. That is the work of God. And I encourage you to, go, to be about it. Jesus continues on in this passage. He continues on uh, to confront the Pharisees, or the Jews, most likely Pharisees. Now, it's important for us to understand what the Sabbath was to the Jews at this time. The Sabbath really was kind of the sweet spot of the Pharisees. This is kind of uh, their home run. This is, you know, uh, this is Marty's Harley, you know. <laughs> this, this, is, uh, this is Steve Boyer's airplane. This is where they made their living. This is what they cherish. This is what they loved. This is what they poured time into. This is what they protected. This is what concerned them. They loved it so much they surrounded it by 39 extra-biblical laws to protect the Sabbath. And you can just imagine them walking around in the streets on the Sabbath with their little booklet of 39 laws and, and waving it at people. Saying, you better obey the Sabbath. They loved the Sabbath. It was the the one out of ten that they perfected. It's the one out of ten that they, they owned and loved and cherished. And Jesus moves in. And what does He do? He heals this man on the Sabbath. Now, we should ask the question again. Don't you think Jesus knew this? Jesus is not unintentional. Jesus is not unaware of what He's doing. Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath because He knows it's going to upset the Pharisees. He knows it. He's intentionally confronting the Pharisees by healing this man on the Sabbath. He could have done it the day before. He could have done it the day after. But He didn't. He did it on the Sabbath. Because he knew that the religious power at this time needed to be confronted. 
These people that held a stronghold over the weak and the poor and the guilty needed to be confronted. And Jesus sought after to do that. He intentionally did it. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for God's work here in Desert Springs and in Tucson? It means we need to be about intentionally confronting ourselves. We need to be about intentionally confronting our neighbors. Because that is what pushes along the story of redemption. It's confronting people with the gospel. That is what needs to happen on a regular basis in this pulpit. That we need to be confronted with our sins. We need to know that we're broken and that we're wandering and there are idolaters and we're doing all these things. We're running from our Savior. And Steve, your people need to be intentionally confronted with this. Now that's not super encouraging. Not something that I'm sure you're all ready to jump and applaud. But that's the reality of what needs to happen. That's the reality of what God is doing. God's work is confrontational. Where would we be if it wasn't for Martin Luther and his desire to confront the Catholic Church? He was all about confrontation. And he intentionally did it. He didn't nail the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg you know, wall or the door just on a whim. I'm thinking, maybe I'll do this today. That sounds fun. No, he intentionally did it. He intentionally came after the Catholic Church because they were wrong. And he intentionally stood before the Diet of Worms and proclaimed, Here I stand. I can go no other. I can do no other. The movement of the gospel, the movement of redemption in all of life, has confrontation in it. And we need to be a people about confrontation because we love the kingdom. We want to push back the darkness and reveal the light. And if we don't confront people, we'll never see the light. I know some of you all in here are reading through the instruments in the Redeemer's hands. He says something like this, Paul David, uh, yeah, Paul David Tripp, Confrontation is difficult when it is not a normal part of our experience. Sometimes it is so rare that we lack the, nece- the necessary understanding, expectations, and skills. Instead, we fumble and fail only making people dread the next time. But from the Bible's perspective, a good relationship always grows in its ability to recognize, confront, and deal with the truth. Each time we speak the truth, we grow in our understanding of our calling, and our skill is carrying it out. Gospel ministry has to include intentional confrontation. For your own. You need to be confronting yourself. You need to be asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? You need to be talking to your brothers and sisters and reining them in, caring for them, and saying, sister, that's not right. You shouldn't be doing that. Brother, please, don't give yourself over to that. It will not go well for you. Jesus intentionally confronts the Pharisees. But He doesn't leave them there. What does He do? He proclaims the truth. Verse 18, uh, I mean, verse uh, 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. What is he doing? 
He's proclaiming His deity. He's proclaiming that He Himself is the Messiah. That what God is doing, He is doing too. Because He was sent to do it. His Father is working, and He's working with Him. To change this world. To restore it. He's proclaiming the truth in the midst of this confrontation. And it's upsetting the Pharisees. They want nothing of it. And they seek to kill Him because of it. Confrontation always, always precludes proclamation. If you're going to confront somebody, you always need to bring the gospel. You always need to bring the truth. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's intentionally confronting the Pharisees and He's also proclaiming the truth. In 1982, something extraordinary happened. In the summer of 1982, Ricky Henderson, yes, Ricky Henderson, broke the uh, stolen base record. Right? Lou Brock's stolen base record. And the world stood still. Right? As he lifts the, as he lifts the base over his head. And afterward he says, Today I'm the greatest of all time. I'm Ricky Henderson. He always referred to himself in third person. Ricky is the greatest. But that statement means nothing if you don't know what happened earlier in the season. Ricky struggled. People were constantly hounding him. Is this going to be the year, Ricky? Are you going to break the record? Are you finally going to do it? People kept confronting him with it over and over again. And Ricky didn't like it. Ricky was upset. And so when Ricky breaks the stolen base record, what does he do? He proclaims the truth that I am the greatest of all time. I broke the record. I'm the greatest base-running, stealing baseball player of all time. Confrontation cannot be um, left alone. It has to be accompanied with the truth. It has to be accompanied with proclamation that Jesus is real and that He is the truth and He's restoring all things. But lastly, we see as God is showing us His work, we see that He's intentionally dying. Jesus confronts the Pharisees, right? He heals this man on the Sabbath. And He knows that this is going to upset the Pharisees. It's going to cause some kind of ruckus. They're going to be upset with Him. And Jesus knew this. Which means for every restorative act that Jesus did throughout all of His life, it only brought Him closer to His death. That Jesus intentionally sought after to confront people, the Pharisees in particular, and He knew it would cost Him His life. He intentionally is walking toward the cross. He's intentionally going to die. Now, I'm leaving Tucson. And by God's grace, we had an opportunity to be in Memphis this past week and to buy a house. And we have a contract on a house and we close in the end of May. I don't know if that means we've bought it or not. But I don't think so. But we're in the process of buying this thing. Right? And the only reason we were able to buy this house is because it had problems with it. 
It's got issues. <laughs> the floor slants. It doesn't have a master bath. It kind of retains a little water. It's got issues. And when I get there in May, the restoring work is going to start happening. And my back is going to hurt. I'm going to smash my finger with a hammer. I'm going to get splinters all over myself. I'm going to scrape my face. I'm going to fall off the roof. I'm going to do all these things to restore this house. This house, I believe, is going to kill me. (laughs) To restore it to where it needs to be. Restoration. God's kingdom, or the restoration of God's kingdom, always includes death. Intentional death. And Jesus is communicating that to us tonight. That if you're going to be about God's work, you're going to be about intentionally going and dying and giving of yourself, and being wounded, and being hurt by the world out there. That's what it means to carry out God's work, is to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus, and to go and to die. That others might come to know Him, and proclaim the goodness of Jesus. Cornelius Plantiga, in his book, not the way it's supposed to be, talks about this, talks about how sin is hard to deal with. It's stubborn. You fight against sin and it fights back. He says this, to speak of sin by itself, to speak of it apart from the realities of creation and grace, is to forget the resolve of God. God wants shalom and will pay any price to get it back. Human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half as persistent, not half as ready to suffer to win its way. Sin is stubborn. And as you move out into this world and you seek to do the work of God and you intentionally give of your life to die, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to bring about death. But that's what it means to do the work of God. To be intentionally compassionate toward those out there that are weak. To intentionally confront those that need to be confronted. And to intentionally go to your grave. To die on behalf of the gospel. You know, without Jesus' death, there is no resurrection. There is no good news without death. Right? If Jesus didn't die, there would be no resurrection. There would be no good, good news to talk about. Death always precedes the good news. And if you're going to go and you're going to be one that proclaims the good news throughout this city, it means you're going to go and die. And by your death, it's going to give you opportunities to share the gospel. To tell people that a rescuer has come. To tell people that shalom does exist. To tell people that harmony is coming. That normalcy is is coming. And it's not coming in some project or program. It's coming in a person. And it's the person of Jesus. 
Jesus is coming back. He's working now and He's coming back to complete His work. And I encourage you, as you think about this transition with Steve, that you would be all about God's work. That you would be intentional toward those that are weak. That you would be intentional toward those that need to be confronted. And you would be intentional about living and dying for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the goodness that that is in it, that we have a Savior that is at work to restore and to redeem all things. And He wants to use us. And He calls us to follow Him. Father, would we do that with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Would we follow our Savior? Not for ourselves, but for His kingdom. That His grace would permeate Tucson, and Arizona, and the Southwest, and America, and the world. Father, would we be about that? Would you make us to be about that? I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.